The threat is we will deny you security unless you do what we want. Let me say it again. We will deny you security unless you do what we want. We had an assassin come to the home of Justice Kavanaugh and try to murder him. We have had credible threats on the lives of other justices. And now members of this body say, we will deny you security for you, your families, your children, unless you do what we want. The 2024 Republican presidential primary field is taking shape. The battle lines are becoming clearer, and so is the field of candidates. Is the odds on favorites, if you look at the polling, still Trump versus Biden? That seems to be it, but it's just way too early to tell. I'm more angry now, and I'm more committed now than I ever was. Big challenge for these candidates is going to be how do they navigate Donald Trump? And, and how do they navigate Ron DeSantis? You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Well, welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program. That was Senator Josh Hawley really sticking it to the Senate Democrats there. Yeah, and I mean, I think that pretty much just underscores the whole reason behind the Dems doing this. This has zero to do with ethics, everything to do about they no longer control the Supreme Court. So whether it's by uh, sending mobs outside the homes of Supreme Court justices, threatening to pull their security, packing the court, all the threats that they've made— uh, they want total control. And it's that's a, what it's, this is about. It, they want their preferred policy outcome. That's it. I mean, this is what we talked about on Tuesday is that the left has gotten to a point in this country where they are so accustomed to being able to bully themselves into a preferred policy outcome. Whether it's on campus and they, they have like a violent protest if any conservative shows up, whether it's corporations and, and, and they, they threaten boycotts and every corporation now essentially is a left-leaning institution. Yeah, and I, I hope everybody knows that. So corporate America, for whatever you think about it, what you're seeing reflected back that you just hate today is a result of a 20-year campaign mm-hmm. that the left has made a cottage industry of it's funded by all kinds of nonprofits from a whole bunch of left-wing billionaires, yep. some overseas, as we've discussed, yeah. Yeah. that their whole attempt is to try to bully shit these people into having shareholder revolts, having all kinds of complications within their businesses, unless they bend to their will. Yep. And that is why you see these bizarre... Uh, sort of things like CRT rise up yep. or like the business practices that we've talked about. It's just like the mob. It's an extortion business. Like real nice place you got here would be a shame if it got set on fire. Totally. And so they just have been so successful over time at creating this this bully mechanism to get what they want. They're just blown away. They can't get this done at the Supreme Court. Yeah. That was the whole purpose of leaking the Dobbs decision, which they figured... Well, this ought to work. They're like, we'll send mobs. Yeah, we'll so send, send mobs. mobs. And the mobs have stayed. The mobs have stayed. The mobs have stayed. And so now they're just completely fit to be tied. They they threw up their hands. They, they inferred violence to justices if they didn't get there with Chuck Schumer. Schumer, Schumer personally. Yeah. And then, and, then they, and then they kind of shrugged their shoulders when actual violence showed up yep. at the homes of these justices. Yep. Uh, and the and the and the Looney Tune assassin says to the police, "I came here because of the Dobbs leak." Yeah, straight up, straight up. They know because it's cause and effect. 
Because they've built this industry. This is what they do. That's what they do. And then, so none of that shit works. So then they go back to the basics of what they do to like, you know, your everyday American, if they're not getting in line, but have a high profile and something to lose, which is dig up as much dirt on somebody as you can and get it in a publication that'll frame it as it's a nefarious. Yep. Right. You saw it with Clarence Thomas with his friend. Mm -hmm. Like a guy can't go on a trip with his friend because now there's all kinds of allegations of he's on the take, despite the fact that his friend never had business before the court whatsoever. And and, and that's the other thing, as I pointed out, is uh, there's an example of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, having a trip funded by a billionaire. Like I thought that was a whole ethical issue. And, and, you know, RBG, our patron saint, apparently did the same thing. You've had um, had multiple liberal justices who'd made no disclosures of gifts and trips that they've been given. It's all smear campaign. It's It's all smear. I mean, they tried against Clarence Thomas you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago. This is this is what they do to him repeatedly. <laughs> but then you see it goes, and then they're like, okay, well, it didn't work with Clarence, so let's go to Gorsuch. They tried him, yeah. Right? They're like, oh, he made a land deal. He sold land. And apparently to a Democrat donor. I know, right? <laughs> like, but then none of that was disclosed. No, of course not. Right? And then, so that didn't work. So then it was like, Chief Justice Roberts is really going to reign. Let's attack his wife yeah. and what she does for a living. And it, it just, it never ends. And they use the predicate of all of those stories to then move into, as we saw, a, a, ju- a hearing in the Judiciary Committee to infer that, that basically the Supreme Court's corrupt. Yep. And they're trying to delegitimize the institution. That's it. And then you get somebody like Hawley who decides to just punch him in the mouth. And that's what's needed. Yeah. Like, that was excellent. I mean, you know. They didn't get anything out of that, by the way. That hearing, oh, they didn't get anything no, out. No. They wanted a big splash, and they got nothing out of it. And I, I thought it was really notable is that, like, immediately after the hearing, the front page of the Washington Post online had no mention of it. New York Times, no mention. You can't because it. it was a CNN, humiliation. No of it. it was. They ended up looking like absolute idiots. They were hoping that Republicans would be like, "Okay, we'll just roll over and let you guys have this too." And absolutely not. You, you, you can feel why we're worked up about this. We feel like this is sort of the crux of the left divide with the rest of the country and how they've been able to be as successful as they have been up to this point. That's why we bring it up and our love for the courts. I mean, that's why I say it's the last line of defense that we have. It really is. Well, listen, it is a special program. It's an OG. OG. Yeah. Because we've got smug and I lean and mean trimming the fat lean lean and mean. So it turns out there's sniffles going on. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We got sniffles all over the place. I mean, it doesn't matter if there's a blizzard. I show up. (laughs) Well, you're talking about a cold? Well, it started with it started with the old man. And Duncan uh was you could probably tell on Monday it was a little quieter on on the Tuesday mm. episode. A little quieter. That dude is always patient zero. Yeah. Like yep. when we went out to Vegas. Yeah. It was like Thanksgiving. We I co- come back it, it's cuz Duncan just rolls up when he's sick. In the he office we call him Duncan 19. <laughs> <laughs> because he does. So immediately then uh, a couple of days later he infects Ashbrook. Out he goes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've got another guy in the office that's an angry Redskins fan. Sick too. He's, he's done too. Yeah. Look at that. So, but guess who's standing? Bingo. Yeah? Bingo. I don't care, you know, if I have an arm that's been shot off, I'm showing up for this. <laughs> some people some people say that I'm a hostile host. <laughs> <laughs> the, the sickness doesn't get into me because I just don't, it's like, it doesn't want it. Uh, well, I wish I had that same problem. <laughs> You've got you at this point. You have a, a basic community, as we've learned, is valid because you've contracted uh, yeah, every variation. That's, that's why I'm immune to COVID. Every strain I've had, <laughs> every single one that's popped up. 
Um, so anyway, those guys are out and we're doing this thing. OG, which means there's no brakes on this train whatsoever. It's going to be a blast. Um, we've got a guest today. You'll recall last week we interviewed Daniel Cameron, a candidate for governor in Kentucky. This is a really important race because it's an off-year election that could determine the change from a Democrat-held governorship to a Republican one if it mm-hmm. goes the right way. Historically, that has meant a lot in terms of a precursor of what happens the next year in a presidential election. So we've decided to do a whole series on that. We've invited the top three candidates in that race. Uh, the next one, Ryan Quarles. Excellent. Uh, he's the Ag Commissioner of Kentucky, a whale of a guy, and I think you're going to enjoy that interview as well. Uh, you're going to be hearing a lot about that in the next two weeks because that primary is coming up. Um, should we read some five stars? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. We should also mention, for those of you tuning in at the end of the episode to look for King of the Hill, you just blame the old man for this. Duncan decided he doesn't want to do it, so. He doesn't think that you're, anybody's worth it. It's at Michael Duncan on Twitter. He's got a sniffle. <laughs> You know what? I'll give everyone a treat. I'll read the first one in Ashbrook's voice. I'll attempt Ashbrook's voice. Okay, yeah, do that. This one is named Houston Holiday. (laughs) It's from Houston Holiday. The title is Fun and Masterful. Thank you guys for creating what has become my favorite podcast. Oh, thank you. I have to be careful where I am when I listen because frequently laugh out loud. Oh, that's excellent. Thanks, Ashbrook. That was a great five star. <laughs> That's so good. All right, the next one is Smug Smash, and I'm going to do it as Smug. <laughs> it's called Never Disappointed. The fellas always know how to start the day off right. I'll fight a horse. <laughs> I discovered the guys through Smug's Twitter. The establishment is letting you down. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not in the text, but I was doing my best impersonation. Uh, I'm getting my master's degree in public policy and listen to the fellas every chance I get. Thank you, boys, for holding the line and being an inspiration for a college Republican on a brainwormed campus. Keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. God bless, dude. College Republicans was a great time to be had. I great mean, time to be had. it seems like it's now a great time to be had. I'll be honest, that wasn't really my jam when I was in college. I remember, so uh, it was kind of like where dorks were. And I don't feel like it's that, that way at all anymore. I went to a nice southern state school. So we had a very oh, so maybe lively college republic. You had your folks who were like, you know, oh, yes, I'm very serious. I want to have a career in politics. I want to go to like Yale Law School. And then you had like the country boys. Yeah. And it was a great time hanging out with them. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so I feel like the, today's college Republicans are a lot more of the latter than the former. I hope so. It seems like I sure it. hope so. I mean, every time we go somewhere, they show up in force, <laughs> and those dudes aren't reading the Federalist Papers. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I love it. Okay, you got the last one? Absolutely. This is from Rob Osborne. The American people speak. It's like my buddies and I have been recorded while we're hanging out. That's, uh, that's what we aim for. That's, that's it. That's what we aim for. You hit it. The Ruthless Podcast is the only digital platform that gives a voice to the American people. Thank you so much. We aim for that. My favorite pod, and I wish it was on every day. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank well, you for that, Rob. Listen. We appreciate it, Rob. We're aiming to improve our services here at the Ruthless Variety yes. Program. We should have an exciting announcement sometime soon. We should. We should. I think everybody's going to enjoy it. Until then, let's get to the serious stuff that's going on. This first one is tragic. Yeah. Absolutely unbelievable. Undoubtedly, you've heard about it. There was a mass shooter in Texas. Mm-hmm. And as we've come to find out, this person was deported four times. The number of times there's stories like this. It's just unconscionable. Uh, 
so there was just the backstory is there is this family that was living in a house and there was a guy shooting a gun and it was his neighbor and they had a baby sleeping in the house and they're like, dude, mm. can you stop shooting the gun like the baby's trying to sleep? It's a reasonable request. A reasonable <laughs> request. I mean, it's how I feel on the 4th of July, by the way. I feel like I'll give you to like 10, but like after 11 o'clock and we get at midnight and in the early a.m. I mean, hours, that's fair. if we're dealing with like a 1 a.m. uh M4 going off in my backyard, yeah. I start to get pissed off. You, you, someone setting off the damn ones that sound like hornet's nest and shit and go 100 feet in the air. It's yeah. like, bro. And my, that was like an 8 o'clock one. And my two-year-old's like, I'm going to be up all night. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, um, uh, this story is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. NBC's write-up of this is incredible. A person to believe, believed to be the suspected shooter accused of killing five neighbors in Texas has been apprehended uh, after a days-long manhunt. Um, yeah, well, we found out who he is, right? And as friend of the program Steve Guest pointed out on Twitter, it takes 15 paragraphs for NBC to tell the reader that the suspect had four previous deportations as an illegal alien. 15 paragraphs. Yeah. 15 paragraphs. And th this is the way that they present it. Governor Greg Abbott said at a news conference Sunday that the gunman had been deported from the U.S. four times and was back in Texas illegally. Not, not as, a st as a matter of fact. Oh, like, well, Governor Abbott is claiming. He's claiming. He, he's pouncing, maybe? Oh, yeah. He's pouncing on the illegal alien who killed a bunch of people. He was pouncing or he was seizing. But anyway, he's stating the facts. This guy had been thrown out of the country on four separate occasions and was back here and murdered an entire family. I mean, it's just... And, and, you know, this is getting so tiresome. We saw the same thing happen. You know, the media has become so clear that they are left-wing uh, operatives, essentially. Uh, when you had that horrible shooting um, and you had the New York Times say, we want to apologize for misgendering the shooter, it's like... Who's the victim here? What are we talking about? As with so many things in society today, it's so upside down, you think you've lost your mind. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like, have I gone crazy? Have, have like, I gone nuts? Maybe I'm the crazy one because nothing makes sense. This whole entire story, regardless of what outlet is writing it, should be uh, a man who had been deported four times murders a bunch of people. And the analysis piece should be What's wrong with a government that can't keep a family, an American family safe because they have just opened the border and allowed somebody who had been apprehended on four occasions and deported to be back in this country, able, capable of doing something like this? You had Kamal Harris say, yes, the border is secure. You had uh, Mayorkas. I think it was under oath. He said the border is secure. They said there is no border crisis. Oh, there you go. Well, well here you go. And it, and it turns out, as we found out this week, because the Biden administration has a political problem now. Now, yeah. Now they can't hide from it. Now, you recall during the 22 elections when we were having this just crisis at the border, mm -hmm. tens of thousands of people living under bridges, deporting, importing unaccompanied minors to work in sweatshops, illegalized slavery in this country. They straight face told us, every single Democrat straight face told us there is no border crisis. Yeah. Right, so now that the president is in cycle and he's running for re-election, uh, they can tell the American people don't believe that, so they've shifted a touch. 
and they've used as a predicate for that um, the Title 42 expiration. Now, you recall Title 42 uh, dealt with asylum claims and whether or not you could just sit in this country and hang out while your asylum claim was being processed. And sign a note that's saying, yeah, I'll show up to court, and if, if the court says I got to go, I'll go. Right. And, and asylum, just like a real 50,000-foot look, is basically there's a, a political reason for you to be escaping your country, like you're, you're under duress, your government is turned against you. I mean, there's a lot of different pieces of it that go in, and that's very rudimentary, but, but you get the idea. I mean, it's not just you want to come into America, that there's like a life or death reason that you're needing to come well, to a different like country. Like there's instances, for example, uh, uh, Biden left these folks behind. Of, of You have these uh, translators in Afghanistan who are embedded with right. our troops and helping them. Sure, they got a claim because their faces are known, and their them and their families are going to be killed if they're left behind. As opposed to, I can't remember, I think we've had over a dozen people on terror lists who have now, those are the ones who have been apprehended yeah. after sneaking into the United States. God knows how many have made it through. I know. And they all apply as asylum. And recall, so Title 42 gets put into place by the Trump administration. Every single Democrat, I think without exception, there may be one or two, uh, says it's inhumane. You can't, you can't do that. And... Then all of a sudden in 2022, you get some endangered Democrats who flip. They say, get rid of this. And in in, in the get rid of this territory, the Biden administration then files court challenges that ultimately overturn Title 42 and they get an expiration. Well, then now all the Democrats who said that that it was inhumane are now like, well, it wasn't a totally (laughs) bad idea. Right, and then they run ads. Like, back. oh, it's an election year, and then they run ads back at home, being like, "I'm standing for a strong border." Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> so anyway, that's the backdrop to all of this. Now, the Biden administration this week is launching. This is according to Axios, migrant processing centers in Central America and South America, deploying 1,500 additional troops at the border in anticipation of the Trump era Title 42 pandemic policy ending on May 11. Uh, The expiration of Title 42 uh, marks a political, logistical inflection point for the Biden administration's immigration policy, a top target of Republican criticism, and now legislation in the House, as officials have struggled to stem years-long surge in border crossing. Now, I would frame that a little differently. Mm. It's not that they have struggled to stem it. It's that they haven't dealt with it at all. It's been absolute dereliction of duty. Like This is something that they have not wanted to discuss because they know that you know the the far left activist base that now controls the agenda for the entire party essentially wants an open border. Yeah, they want it. Yeah. So Title Forty Two is they if they is they frame it just differently than me uh, allowed for immigration authorities to rapidly turn back hundreds of thousands of people without giving them a chance at asylum. It's not necessarily true, but the scenes at the border could uh, turn chaotic as tens of thousands of migrants and asylum seekers appear set to make the dangerous journey post-Title 42, exacerbating a long-standing humanitarian crisis. Now, I think that this actually does a couple of things. One, it's obvious this is a problem. Yeah. But two, it also unmasks this charade that Democrats and liberals have promulgated that these are unsophisticated migrant workers fearing for their life, sort of trying to get a better life for them and their families. That is true of many of the people themselves. For the organizers, the coyotes, the traffickers, the drug dealers, 
all of those people take advantage of a much higher sophistication, which is they know what the hell Title 42 is. Mm -hmm. They know what the expiration date of Title mm -hmm. 42 is. And they are using everything in their power to try to pounce on top of it. And like, that is the problem. They And that's the thing is they know, like you said, uh, that Title 42 is expiring. We saw previously uh, when you had news organizations who would interview migrants at the border, they'd be like, yeah, well, Biden's here now, so we know it's okay to cross. They sent the message. They saw when every Democrat on that debate primary stage raised their hand and said, yes, I would offer free college, free health care, living expenses, everything for anyone who entered the country illegally. So that's loud and clear. And knowing that Title 42 is expiring, everyone knows there's going to be a surge at the border and in that chaos, it's just like a bonanza for these coyotes. That's yeah. when they love to operate, is when, when there's a surge beyond already the strained resources which are unable to handle the crisis at the border. They know, I mean, like we, we, we previously reported on the show, is they're advertising on TikTok. Yeah. They're adver coyotes are advertising on TikTok for both sides of the border. They're telling Americans, hey, if you've got a car, we can get you a few hundred bucks. Just meet us at the border, essentially, and, and help haul some folks illegally into the country but it's their business it's, it's unreal it's their business you know and it's not like your average migrant worker is sitting around watching cnbc waiting for an update on american immigration policy yeah they're not it's these people the nefarious folks who mm -hmm. make a living out of exploiting these people and exploitation is key so you hear some estimates of up to half half of the women and children who make their way up? Disgusting. Are 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 sexually assaulted? It's that's insane. It, I mean, it just it, if that doesn't make your blood boil, I don't know what. And does. that's another example of misguided liberal policy that they think is the more humane approach ends up just being the, a tragedy. Yeah, it's it, it's absolutely disgusting. So according to Fox News, there are over two hundred and ten thousand illegal immigrant border encounters in April, bringing the total number of 1.4 million to the fiscal year. Insane. That's worse than at this time in the last fiscal year when we, we thought at that time it was an absolute yeah. top of the line crisis, uh, which is the worst year on record. Yeah. So, I mean, Biden's setting some records. <laughs> that is that is that is true. That and putting Jello pops and <laughs> whatever it is that he eats. Um, so, but we've also noticed... There's this little chorus of mayors, mm -hmm. which you recall several months ago, uh, all of a sudden decided to take an interest in immigration policy because DeSantis and Abbott and others were starting to send migrants off of their border where they could not actually provide humanitarian services to some of these blue states that said that they wanted uh, any and all. Yeah, and and, and and Chicago specifically, you had Mayor Lori Lightfoot. I remember at the, at the beginning of, of this, she said, Oh, yes. Well, Chicago is a, a compassionate city. Maybe next time I'll pay to provide the buses for Abbott, <laughs> right? And now she's singing a bit of a different a tune. A different tune. So out. this is according to ABC News. Outgoing Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot and New York City Mayor Eric Adams are criticizing Texas Governor Greg Abbott for resuming the, quote, inhumane and dangerous, unquote, busing of migrants to major cities right i mean it's as if and maybe this is true that they live in such a small information flow mm -hmm. that they actually don't know what's happening to these people at the border i think they don't want to know i think they they like having that ignorance but how can you say how can you say the inhumane and dangerous busing when you see the alternative going on at the border yeah. The alternative 
is coyotes, like you said, raping, killing, uh, people living in squalor, homeless, under the, I mean, we don't have the, the resources to take care of all of these people at the border. If you think a bus ticket in America is inhumane, yeah. why, why don't you try seeing what's happened at the border where, where it's a surge of people being trafficked? That's what's happening. So, but it turns out uh, their real problem is not the inhumane or dangerous conditions. They go on to say, your lack of consideration or coordination in an attempt to cause chaos and score political points has resulted in a critical tipping point in our ability to receive individuals and families in a safe, orderly, and dignified way. Okay. Um, at least Adams, and I think Lightfoot, and I know the mayor of D.C., uh, said last year they couldn't take care of it anymore. It, it wasn't about making sure that they set up a system where they could properly like monitor and take care of it. They didn't care about that. They're pro- they finally got immigration for the first time. Yeah. And they didn't like it. That was, that was Eric Adams. I remember that. They didn't like it. And they wanted federal resources, a ton of it. The same federal resources, by the way, that they don't think is appropriate to go to the border to handle this no, itself. No, not at all. Not at all. Right? They wanted that to take care of now their immigration I mean, problem. I mean, that's, a, that's the whole thing is they, can't, they have zero self-awareness, ability to see the irony in this of them saying that, oh, they're causing chaos to score political points. They have encouraged a system that causes this chaos for political points. Yep. They're in, when they raise their hands on that stage and say, I will offer every illegal alien carte blanche, full education, full health care, if you can make it into this country illegally, that's how you create this system that's dangerous and inhumane. And it's that's all, what encourages and it. And it's all NIMBY politics, right? Not in my backyard. Bingo. I mean, it's, it's fine to take that position as long as the consequences of that position never come on my doorstep. That's, that's their hope. That is their position. And it is. That's exactly what it is. And from that was the brilliance of this DeSantis move to Martha's Vineyard, what yep. Abbott's been doing. The brilliance of that is not the migrants. The migrants probably had a hell of a lot better time on that trip than they do sitting at the border and, you know, God knows what kind of condition. I think the larger issue is if we can't convince Democrats that this is a real problem because they were saying there was no border crisis, maybe we can wake them up in their own backyard. Maybe then they can join the discussion. uh, You know, when she knows there's a camera there, AOC will go to the border and cry. But once New York City is having to deal with this, oh, wait a minute. Can't talk about that. No, not at all. Can't talk about that. So anyway, this whole thing is going on. Abbott says, the hell with that. I'm going to keep doing whatever the hell I want. Yes. Right? Which is exactly what he should do. And by the way, he should do it right up until Lori Lightfoot or whoever's her successor, that socialist psychopath that they elected, yeah. until they go to to the senators and congressmen from Illinois and say, I know that you're all left-wing lunatics, but you need to support border policy. You need to support a border wall. You need to get Remain in Mexico back. You need to get some form of Title 42. If all those people start voting that way, I'll be damned if you wouldn't be able to pass some things. And, and this, that's the thing is what they've actually ended up doing is everything they can to undermine border security and, and the individuals who are trying to secure the border when they create these false lies that, oh, wow, these uh, uh, border security guards were whipping migrants on horses, which was found to be completely false just fabricated but those people still lost their jobs yeah because that's all that matters to Dems. as long as my opponent's life is ruined 
mission, you know, that's a, that's a success for me. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. And it also, like you never heard an apology from the podium for any of that stuff. Of course not. Right? No. It, all it did is unfairly malign the Border Patrol, all the people trying to keep work to keep this country safe. And then when it turns out they were just lying about what it was that was happening. There's a standard down playbook. My opponent is racist and wow, the consequences suck. Uh, I didn't have anything to do with this. Yeah, I mean, it's just, oh man, it makes you so mad. But anyway, the downstream effect of this is, again, according to Axios, fentanyl overdoses, their death rate nearly quadrupled in the last five years. That's insane. It's just, dude, I mean, and there it is, right? I mean, you talked about the trafficking. We've talked before a lot about the the forced labor situation that we have in that New York Times article. And, and the fentanyl thing can't be ignored. And one thing that you know was pointed out is in this Axios article, there's not a single mention of the border with Mexico or China who is supplying the fentanyl. Mm. They, I mean, that's the thing. They never, they never are willing to give the exact truth. And they, I guess they just don't trust the American people are capable of deciding things on their own, that they have to present this extreme far-left viewpoint. By, just by omission. And, and the thing is, what I've never understood about the fentanyl discussion is why it's characterized in the media as your classic drug trade. Like it's a like it's a crack cocaine epidemic in the eighties, or it's it's cocaine with, with Pablo Escobar. Mm-hmm. Like that was a criminal enterprise. The f- primary foundation of it was printing billions of dollars for drug lords. That's why they wanted to do it. It was an enterprise. I'm sure some of that goes into the people who traffic this stuff. But if it's coming from China, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. I know. If you if you wanted to they ruin a country. Doing. They know what they're doing. If you were wanted to ruin a country, mm-hmm. what would you do different? Exactly. What would you do different? And Send I, over boatloads of fentanyl. It's just like COVID. Yeah, it's right here. <laughs> I just I, I like I can't figure out why why we characterize this as though it's some kind of like a Pablo Escobar. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not. It's not like this stuff. A thimbleful of it kills an entire community. Yeah, and it's coming in by the ton. Yeah, what good was it? Would it do on the, as a street narcotic? I mean, people are dying every time they touch this stuff. If you come in contact with it, you you either get seriously sick or die. I mean, that's the thing is that the, the, the larger picture of all of this, uh, you know, prime example here is Axios neglects completely to, m- to mention that the border with Mexico is, is the source of where it's coming from, and it originates from China. Their mission allows this madness to continue. I just, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Until we get serious about that piece of it, yeah. I don't know how you, I mean, that's exactly the right. border thing we're on, and as soon as you get Republican control, we'll get back to where we were with Trump and being able to begin to make massive progress, which he did. We were well on our way. I mean, he was setting records for all-time lows in terms of border crossings. We were well on our way, and we're hopefully going to be back at some point. I noticed in this document... Yes, I was excited about this. ...that you decided to unfairly malign. On the day, by the way, that we have Ryan Quarles, the Commissioner of Agriculture, Mm -hmm. you've decided to unfairly malign the good people of Kentucky. Well, it's not maligning. There's just a very interesting mystery... That's going on. Okay. So this is from Lex18.com. It's a fair news source in the <laughs> great state of Kentucky. Two horses from Jessamine County Farm die after separate Churchill Downs racing incidents. Hmm. It says, three horses have reportedly died in the past four days at Churchill Downs. Two of those horses came from the same farm. 
On April 29th, Parents Pride, a filly reportedly died following race 8. Parents Pride was from Ramsey Farm, a well-known farm in the horse racing world, located in Jessamine County. On Tuesday, one horse died following a race, and another had to be euthanized. According to Daily Racing Form's Marty McGee, Chasing Artie, a three-time stakes winner from Ramsey Farm, collapsed and died following race 8 Tuesday. Those are a couple of really tough blows. Owner uh, Ken Ramsey told McGee, another horse, Take a Charge Brianna, a three-year-old filly owned by Willis Horton Racing, was reportedly euthanized after a, quote, catastrophic injury following race five on Tuesday. On April 27th, Derby contender Wild and Ice had to be euthanized after injuring his uh, left hind leg following a workout at Churchill Downs. McGee says on his Twitter that more information about the recent deaths will come Wednesday morning. What's what's your point here? Well, I mean, who, I, I, I'm curious what's causing these. What's co- what could be behind this? Well, you get look. I mean, I know you know the 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 the, the horse racing has outlawed a lot of horses receiving medication that they needed in the they, past. They passed federal legislation last year that actually I mean, dealt specifically with. Who that. Like I remember, poor junkie horse. They banned ban Bob Baffert, and you were pro junkie horse. I, I, I'm pro junkie horse. I'm pro Baffert. Yeah, he did nothing wrong. <laughs> and no one cares. So if what's the your what's your clean. issue? So what's your issue? And you know what? When they're breaking legs and stuff, maybe you have to give them on that junk. That had these oh, you, this out is, legs. Wait, this is a pro-drug ar- argument? 100%. Oh, I didn't know where this is headed. I mean, I didn't either until this point. <laughs> <laughs> you roid out their legs. They don't break. I thought you were going to say that you thought that these horses were treating unfairly. And I think that that is the most argue- it, completely ridiculous. If a horse is broken, you got to get rid of it. You don't want it to suffer. You don't want it to suffer. But you don't get there if it's maybe it just needed a taste. Just I, a little bit. I will you guarantee know? you. A little bit to have a fun night. <laughs> I, it's unbelievable. This is a pro-drug in the horse <laughs> argument. This is unbelievable. Baffert did nothing wrong. I mean, is he really, he's completely banned? He won't be there this year? No, I think he's got, I think he's got, this is the last year of his ban though. I think he gets back into it. That's bullshit. I mean, the guy just made the sport so much more fun. <laughs> he brought a lot of class to it. They're keeping him out, and they're keeping the drugs out of these poor horses. Just give them a little taste. I'm not saying, you know, mess them up that they're out there fighting people in the stands. But, you know, you give them a little bit, loosen them up a little bit. (laughs) Horse racing is a tough sport, but I guarantee you this. Most of these horses, including the farms that we're talking about here, treat those horses better than you were treated as a child. I I can guarantee you that. These are like tens of millions of dollars on the line right <laughs> yeah and you want to make sure your horse is is, is doing great had the best food living the best life ready to roll on race day and then you know you'll be making millions off you know the horse has a great time they're making more kids one of these days i'm going to take you on a stable tour i would and love you're gonna to you're that. gonna see what these horses live like and you're gonna be kings. like absolute kings. you're like i want to be a racehorse and they have to because like i've said like th- horses are like the softest animal in the animal kingdom. The most temperamental. You give them the wrong food, they will break their leg. Wait, is this the other thing? Okay, so it was pro-drug, it's, and it's, now you're getting to they're just soft. They are soft. Horses are incredibly <laughs> soft. Incredibly soft. I have a feeling this stable tour is going to accomplish more than one thing. You're going you're gonna to go head-to-head with one of those thoroughbreds. It's going to give you a hoof to the, to the forehead. Uh, okay, this is important news. A really important news. Invasion of the super rats. Mm. 300 million super rodents that survive off uh, takeaway scraps, evade poisons, could overrun Britain. Yeah. 
I mean, they clearly have a rap problem. We're seeing everything that's going on with that family. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Every day, it's like another story of, oh, God, someone said they're happy their dad died or someone's happy that, like, their brother's not going to be there. Is Place this is a, packed full of rats. You've turned this into a Meghan Markle thing? <laughs> that's unbelievable. Millions of super rats are threatening to plague Britain as they grow increasingly fatter by scavenging off takeaway scraps as disgusted customers spot them outside of fast food restaurants. Footage shows one woman left in shock after seeing a giant rat feasting in a rubbish bin in a McDonald's uh, car park before scuttling away to nearby bushes. According to pest experts, rats who eat just about anything are becoming more resistant to poisons as well as adept at finding better and more hidden spots to nest and breed in walls, basements, and attics. Well, I'll tell you what. So, you know, it says it right there. They're willing to eat just about everything. They're more resistant to poison. It's the British food. Like, if you're willing to eat that, number one, you've hit rock bottom. Number two, you don't fear death. Nothing can kill you if you're willing to eat that garbage. Today is the UK's uh, turn in the barrel. (laughs) I mean, it is the worst food. Hands down. Smug is No one on. enjoys British food. You're not like, oh, you you, you went to a, a trip to London. The food there is terrific. No one has ever said that. <laughs> the Italian no community that. is no longer in danger. The <laughs> Irish community is no longer in danger. If you're English, you got a real problem. I mean, Italians got good food. Irish, I guess, is, I mean, it's like misery food. You know, it's like boiled potatoes. It's like hard times. <laughs> this is a civilization that's just seen some shit. But the British, you know, they've had such opulence, and this is the best they can come up with is the trash food. But the damn rats are doing them a favor. <laughs> Do you think that maybe they'll have like a migration problem with rats, like trying to get on the boats and go over there? They're like, like we got to get to the other side of the English Channel to get some good food. This is absolute garbage. They're like, this is the Valhalla for rats. Yeah, I mean, like, like I, I, I would when this lady like runs out of this restaurant in horror, right? <laughs> yeah. of, 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 you're essentially eating from the McDonald's bin at the same time, lady. You're having. <laughs> Food in Britain is not like some kind of a treat. You're no better than the rat. Looking down at a rat at that point makes zero sense. <laughs> well, so the largest rat caught and recorded in the UK was 21 inches long. That's a monster. Which is the size of a small dog. I wonder if that includes the tail. Probably not, right? No, no. They, they wouldn't include the, I mean, Because the tail itself is probably It'd be a yard 20. or something. Yeah. Uh, recent figures show 78% of rats and 95% of house mice have genes that make them immune to poisons. That is insane. Yikes. 95% of mice. Dude, do not bring those things over here. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Do they, do they not have cats? Like, how, how does this get this out of control? <laughs> At some point, you got to get a cat. It's the garbage right? food. I thought you, that was your take. Well, be like, listen, I mean, like, I, I fully support watching the food chain in action, you know? <laughs> Find some cats. What like British people have zero idea what they're doing. Clearly, Dude, I mean, we it. kicked them out of here. They're falling. Their civilization fell apart. You know, their empire's gone. Oh my God. They got a fake king. You're never getting invited to that embassy. <laughs> <laughs> never. And they have pretty good parties. Um, I will say though, you're talking about cats. Take it. I mean, you're gonna have like a puma to take care of a 21 inch rat. Is, that is insane. That's a big cat. Yeah. Oh man. All right. So. Um, this is about Biden's reelection. And I would be remiss if we didn't notice what a slow start this thing is off to. Uh, this is according to Axios. President Biden's reelection campaign is off to a slow start, months behind the 2012 pace of Barack Obama's last presidential uh, president to win a reelection. Biden announced reelection bid uh, before his campaign team was ready to go. <laughs> 
That's going to be a first. And now is hustling to build an organization that could take on GOP frontrunner Donald Trump, who announced his uh, campaign nearly six months ago. Biden 2024 has just two full-time staffers who've been announced publicly. Campaign manager Julie Chavez Rodriguez, that was like who you, uh, who you reco- who Cesar you Chavez's up. granddaughter, yeah. right? Um, no relation to Julio Cesar Chavez, probably the, the world-renowned lightweight boxer. Yeah, not, no relation to that. Um, a, a senior aide to Biden who doesn't start her new job. She doesn't start as campaign manager for another two weeks. Limiting the campaign's decision making. Yeah, no. If you have a campaign manager, that does limit some decision making. I mean, do they need a campaign <laughs> manager or convalescent care? I mean, <laughs> like that's the thing. You need someone to change his diaper, burp him. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> like it's gotten off to a slow start. Oh, I thought Biden would be just scrambling. He's lively. You got to keep up with Joe. It's a real boiler room over there. <laughs> Bloomberg initially reported that Biden's team uh, would report its fundraising for the first 48 hours after he announced the campaign on April 25. But a week later, no totals have been announced. A campaign spokesperson told... So they have a spokesperson. (laughs) Which, by the way, I read it's going to be TJ Ducklow. Is he going to be in? I heard... I read in Playbook or, or, or... yeah, it was or Punchbowl or something like that. That, that TJ Ducklow. Wow, I think he was our first or second scalp on this program. That was a hell of a controversy. That he is now back in the fold, and there's mixed reviews. Yeah. I, oh wait, now they mentioned I did. I did see a thing of of um, it was it was I think uh, Joe Biden's former staffer came out and oh, they yeah. were like, "This is absolute bullshit. He shouldn't be allowed back in." Yeah. So he was fired because he was like berating female staff and then he ultimately had a relationship with a reporter and and he called um oh gosh what's tara palmier i think what's the name of the yeah uh, who writes she writes playbook right well she used to now she does uh Punchbowl, she puck, Punchbowl, I think. puck um and he called her and just like basically <laughs> gave her threats and said horrible things if she would report on his relationship yeah Yes, now I remember it. Anyway, that all caught up to him. He got fired, and he was basically doing a mayor campaign in Nashville. Now he's back, and I bet he's the spokesperson on this. Amazing. Unnamed spokesperson. But Amazing. It, if they only have two campaign staffers, and he's one of them, and the other one doesn't start for two weeks, how many people get going to be, right? Seems like some logical deduction we do here on the Ruthless Friday program. <laughs> wow. Uh, the campaign is relying on the Democratic National Committee for personnel support and money. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> All of Biden's ads and the announcement were paid for by the DNC. Uh, in 2011, Obama's re-election announcement was paid for by his campaign. Uh, Biden's campaign uh, campaign team is well behind the schedule. We went over that for sure. Uh, and they do all the parallels of, of Obama. It turns out, I mean, I don't think this is a mystery to anybody. We've talked about this for since the 2020 election. There's no other plan. The only plan is to keep this dude as limited as possible and hope Republicans blow each up each other up. You know, I I think this is actually an opportunity to do a good contrast of some stuff that I've been reading and hearing. Uh, on the opposite side from Biden is I've started seeing articles which are like we are surprised. This is from journalists they're like we are surprised at how well run an organization. This Trump presidential campaign yeah, it's, it, has been, which is amazing to hear journalists have to admit that. Yeah, it's well, amazing to hear that. It is amazing to hear that. But we also know here, and the reason you listen to the Ruthless Variety program is because we have relationships with all those people. 
And we know, like, one of the guys that they brought into the room was this guy, Chris Lasavita, who I've worked with for close he, to 20 years. He was like years. a Marine or something, right? Yeah, Marine. They, they usually got their shit together. He was responsible for the uh, Swift Boat ads against John Kerry. Was he really? Yeah. This dude knows his stuff. No shit. He made those. Yeah. So if you see that guy, which, by the way, we'll have him on the program. You guys can hear from him directly. Uh, he's Trump's senior strategist now. Um, but when you see his name associated with an, uh, with an outfit, it's going to get done. Like, stuff's going to get done. I mean, you don't want to be in the same room as this, this guy if it's not getting done. Damn. I'm, uh, if he comes in here, I might need his autograph. I loved one of my favorite things on Twitter was replying to John Kerry tweets with the Swift boat ad. And the replies would just become so angry and hostile. Because, yeah, right. like, it fucked him up so bad. <laughs> <He> totally, <laughs> totally became such I an issue. I had no idea he was behind that. Yeah, and you always say in a campaign, honestly, when your opponent is focused exclusively on the opposition that's being run against them, yeah. rather than a message, you're going to win the race. Yeah. And, like, that was what happened in 04. And, you know, these guys pretty good at it. So, anyway, that's what's happening right now with the Biden campaign. Um, this story blows my mind. This is from the AP. A German court said Wednesday the landlord sunbathing naked in a courtyard of his building wasn't a reason for his tenants to reduce their rental payments. <laughs> <laughs> the, case, the case involved a building in an upmarket residential district of Frankfurt, which included an office floor rented by a human resources oh company. God. HR? <laughs> HR? The company withheld its rent because it objected, among other things, to the landlord's naked sunbathing. In response, the naked landlord sued. Frankfurt, Frankfurt State Court rejected the company's reasoning, finding that the usability of the rented property was not impaired by the plaintiff sunning himself naked in the courtyard. Incredible. It said in a statement that it couldn't see an admissible, deliberate, improper effect on the property. I'm mate. I like this is just completely batshit crazy. Feels like a strict constructionist over there in Frankfurt. <laughs> <laughs> like, and and of all people, it's like the HR company is like, listen, we just have a, 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 a little problem over here. These are the people that get into your office and are like, hey, um, Judy feels like your tone was a little rough yesterday, and I'd like you to work on that. Here are the following five hours of classes I'd like you to go I to. I mean, he was kind of like, here's, here's, I got some for your tone. <laughs> <laughs> right here. I got a study. It's invented by Thane. <laughs> Sun's up, buns out. This guy said, fuck it. And he's a landlord. <laughs> uh, this one's right up your alley. Southwest, according to fox4news.com. Southwest was named America's worst airline. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. It's essentially just flying steerage. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the garbage truck with wings. <laughs> and it, 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 I mean, I, I continue, like I thought over the years they would have learned and, and, and started trying to become like a real airline. Yeah. To my knowledge, they still have like zero sign seats. It's Royal Rumble. Yeah, no. Right. Every flight is Royal Rumble, and every time you hear something horrible, it's it's always because like that's the thing is it's like a, a it's a pressure cooker, <laughs> right? You find people who are like, I mean, I don't want to pay more than ten bucks to get where I'm going. Uh, I don't need an assigned seat. I'm willing to engage in combat to find a seat, <laughs> and also while thirty thousand feet in the air, you yeah. know, it's like UFC with wings. <laughs> 
So it was an actual study that was done by Wallet Hub, who monitors these sort of things. They ranked 11 airlines dead last with Southwest. You know what beat it? Frontier. Oh, my God. Wasn't that the P one? There was some P one that we read about months ago. There was somebody, like, peeing it in oh, I mean, that was surprising. Like, Frontier is really, like... Man, I don't know if you can call that an airline. It's kind of like animal transport. Like <laughs> Spirit didn't make the list though. So, oh no, it's number two. Wow, okay, it's so best. So best is Delta, and number two is Spirit. Now wait a minute. Now okay, I'm beginning yeah, to I'm, question. I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of this. I'm kind of skeptical of this right now. Like I've had my issues with Delta, but you can't put them. You know, in the, no, that's the same a pretty level. good airline. It's all right. It's all right. Well, it's an airline. It's Smug. an airline. So it's an airline. It's for humans. Yeah. Which is, I mean, shockingly, like, it's not you know, your, your, a line your, that you got to draw. Your usual there should private be, travel. They, they should have broken this down into, like, airlines for humans and for subhumans. <laughs> Where, like, in the second tier, it's like, okay, you've got Frontier, Southwest, and Spirit duking it out for, like, <laughs> who's committing the least atrocities in the sky? <laughs> uh, all right. So next, getting back to politics. Yes. Um, this is actually a huge debate that's happening now. It's kind of beginning to simmer up as the presidential gets heated up uh, because Trump, who's now opened up what looks like this week as a 36% lead wow. uh, over DeSantis, the question is, should Trump debate? And the reason the question is being posited at all is because Trump basically said, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to go to the, the debates. And the rationale, as it has been litigated in the press, to my understanding, is twofold. One is, he's got this massive lead. Why would you want to change anything? Yeah. Right? The second is, he wants to shrink this calendar and make sure that this presidential election is in a full hot war for as short a period as you can, which makes a lot of sense if you got a lead like that. Sure. And especially like, you know, uh, the Dems are going to raise a boatload of money. Yeah, the less money you you have to spend fighting Republicans, the more money you can train on the general and yeah, beating the Yeah, which is totally what they're thinking. I think it's a third thing. Every once in a while, Trump just wants to remind people that the show doesn't start till the showman arrives, mm. right? And I think he is he sees himself as the incumbent here, which in many respects he is, right? Sure presidential nominee two times in a row former president of the united states got a big lead he sees himself as the incumbent and the idea that people are scheduling debates without asking for his consultation is a problem for him and he wants to make sure that people know that you don't really have a debate unless i show up he skipped one of the debates in 2016 he, he did one of the one of the republican primary debates he did and i think it was actually a mistake at the time because he was rolling everyone and he skipped a debate it had to do with some wounded warrior foundation he ended up having to do some separate philanthropy work there kind of got him off message for two weeks and like really the only thing he needed to do was show up and do the same thing he'd been doing at the previous eight debates and it hurt him in the polls he did some like was it around christmas time or something he yeah did it was some like charity kind of like a uh, uh, rally well he had to because it was the, the debate was sponsored by a veterans organization oh, yeah so he had to do something for vets to show that he was like you know not anti-vet he was just well, anti and, the debate and they were happening at the same time yeah okay, so he well, scheduled it at the same I'll time I'll tell you what no, I, no he created it I, I remember watching the uh, Trump rally yeah I yeah. remember the debate listen he dominated 2016 but he also got himself into some trouble in Iowa shortly thereafter I think if Donald Trump is Donald Trump in these debates, 
he should welcome all comers. Yeah. Because if he performs the way that he has performed in primary debates, mm-hmm. not talking about general election debates, in primary debates, as Duncan often says, real hard to get him off his game. Because he does the observation. Yeah. Right? It's yeah, not like he's defending best. anything. He's just like, look at all these problems. These guys are part of it. Can you believe this stuff? Yeah. And yeah. it was like lifting of the fourth It's 100% wall. like your, your buddy on the barstool next to you. Totally. He has mastered that approach to it. So, but he's he's doing all of this. And we'll see how it plays out. The big question is, there is an, the first scheduled debate in August in Milwaukee that the RNC is sanctioned. It's a Fox News debate. And that's the one he's thrown a lot of shade over. And then they have a second one that's, I think, undated at this point, but it's probably like in a September time frame. I'm guessing they do these things like monthly. Mm-hmm. Uh, was at the Reagan Library. And I forget the name of the dude who is the chairman of the board of the Reagan, but it's a it's like Fred Ryan, I think, who used to be at the Washington Post. He doesn't care for the Post. Obviously, they pay so Washington Post. Got it. So he's had a problem with those two that have been announced. So he's kind of pushing back on all the that. Ra- Wait, this, at the Reagan Library? It's yeah. a yeah where they have the uh the, the big was air force one for reagan yeah is inside that thing yeah yeah i mean I, I don't what if what what input does this guy have on the library you know isn't his job basically like make sure no one steals any shit i think it's pretty tough not to show up at the reagan library i just think it is yeah. uh i think it's pretty tough to not show up for the first debate period as a announced candidate but he's gonna you know he's gonna make us wonder and that's the other thing that this guy does is that he is his theatrics are really like the what makes Donald Trump. Yeah. And he's going to build a lot of suspense about whether he's going to this thing. My bet is he goes. My bet is he I goes. I hope he goes. I, I think I he, mean, I, he there, should. There are a few things as fun as watching Trump in a debate. To me, like there are very few things. Like it's better than basically any movie I've seen in the past few years. <laughs> I'd take a Trump debate over any of them. The first one when he was going down the line making fun of everybody. I mean, it's just. Like, see, like, he, I mean, he changed, he literally, he's the only person, like, I remember, uh, who are those authors? They had those, like, game change books. They're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Boy, I and, yeah, yeah, that didn't change the game. Trump, Trump is who changed it. Like, yeah. you never saw someone turn a debate, which was like, you know, oh, point, counterpoint, what's your rebuttal, into just a brawl. Yeah. You know, and that's what the public wants. That is what we the public wants. We want to see it. Wants. So, like, I mean, I don't know and if I also can stay think, away, look, but, there, like, the public would love it. There's also a, a heavy segment of the Republican electorate that is in a different place than it was in 2016 in terms of their experience with Donald Trump. And I think they're going to want to hear him defend decisions. I think mm-hmm. they're going to want to hear how, you know, he his administration, when it left, could so quickly devolve with the Biden administration. Like, what constants are you putting in place like why is the border the way it was if we were just going to do this on a four-year increment and granted he was running for re-election any laws i but i think there's a lot of policy pieces and particularly with people in his administration who are now running Mm -hmm. against him that are going to be more interesting than just basically the way he was able to do it i mean that's a good point like as a party we kind of come to a consensus on where we stand on a number of issues through these debates if we're like oh that guy made a great point he dominated and crushed everybody pointing out that this was a huge mistake or that this is a great idea or that this was a fuck up that comes out in the debates it does when they all have to like you know where do you stand on everything duel it out and may the best man win and how best you man ha- or woman. and how you handle your business yeah right i mean the other one that i just remember like yesterday is when trump called out jeb jeb's wife and at, it, it, jeb jeb demanded he apologize and there was like trump's like no, no i'm not, it's not like, doing man. it man and it was <laughs> like whoa man all of a sudden everything shifted 
and you just realized that there was nothing you could do to Donald Trump with conventional techniques. I mean, that's the thing is like Mitt wrote the book, No Apologies, but Trump actually lived it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. And I think, I mean, look, the polls are the way they are right now for a variety of reasons. Gotta remember Ron DeSantis has not announced his candidacy. Um, have, it, have they gotten that thing? Because he's got a, apparently. What I'm hearing is it's like uh, he wants to pass state legislature thing that like allows you to run for president. You don't have to resign. Yeah, has that passed yet? Is that I don't know. Duncan would know, but I, I'm look. The legislature will do what he needs to be done. He's going to run for president. and He's going to announce sometime later than now. And it's really difficult to try to fight somebody like Donald Trump when you're not operating your campaign yet. Yeah. So I think that this thing over the summer is going to look a lot different than it looks like right now. And at that point, you may see some different calculations on, you know, showing up for debates and things but, like that. I mean, that. like, even for, for the from DeSantis, like, even from just, like, what you can utilize when you're not running for president, like, I don't know what his media presence has been like. Like, what media presence has he had? Well, he's been doing events, but they're all, you know, I mean, he did an overseas thing, but he also did a bunch of different events, but, but they're constrained by the fact that he's not running an actual campaign and there's different things you can do for messaging crowd building things like that but like i think right now he's like trying to make the big thing that like i'm at war with disney i'm not gonna let them have their way okay well like get out there and tell people that well yeah but he i mean so he did a big thing last week about the death penalty for people who rape children. Yeah. Which I was like, yeah, yeah that's great. Fantastic. So, I mean, there are points being put on the board. They're just not a one-to-one, head-to-head sort of argument against the two top candidates that we need to see. And I am expecting that we will see this. If I were Ron DeSantis' advisor, I would say we got to do a coast-to-coast tour called it's the Hang'em High Tour. It's about the policy of executing... <laughs> Pedophiles, right? The Hang'em High tour. tour. Coming to a city near you. We're not going to talk about running for president, but we're going to talk about what I've done. The but this is just me talking tour. about governor stuff, folks. I'm just being a governor. <laughs> just doing governor just what stuff. what governor does. <laughs> and we hang in I love it. All right, well, let's get to our interview. Uh, recall, this is our second installment in the candidates that we will see for the Kentucky primary for governor next month. I want to welcome to the program a very good guy. I've known him for a while, not p- particularly well, but I followed his career uh, and and been very impressed as, with his work as the Kentucky Ag Commissioner, who's now running for governor. Ryan Quarles, welcome to the program. Glad to be with you. You know, it's Derby time in Kentucky, yeah, so is. this is agriculture at its best at an international level. You guys get all the attention here this week. I mean, this is this is the big one. It is just worked the backside of Churchill. And, uh, you know, I got a good tip uh, this morning that in this race in 2023, it's going to be a very crowded field of good contenders. <laughs> that there's a couple front runners that people are kind of paying attention to. But I think that the winner of this race is going to be someone that breaks late and sprints to the finish line. And oh, by the way, there's a horse race this weekend, too. <laughs> I see what you're doing there. I see what you're doing there. And obviously, you're referring to uh, two major competitors. You've got more than that uh, with Daniel Cameron and Kelly Kraft, who have been getting all of the national headlines in this primary. But those of us who've spent a lot of time in Kentucky and Kentucky politics know that uh, there's more than meets the eye with the Kentucky electorate. And you've had a grassroots 
hold there for for a long time and you're very much in this race so where do you think it sits now you got a couple weeks left this has obviously been a grind and i'll say at the outset this is one of those things that's very very tough for me being friends with with basically everybody in the race and and watching it and i would have taken uh either any of the three top contenders in almost any senate race last cycle (laughs) Uh, i I heard you say that yeah Yeah. it's a dog fight so so tell me where you think it sits i think that uh we're all sitting about the same spot right now that the only poll that i'm worried about is what happens on may 16th I do feel like we have a very strong grassroots apparatus across Kentucky that dates back uh, almost eight years now since I've been crisscrossing the Commonwealth uh, as commissioner of agriculture. And we we have a very good foothold, strong foothold in rural Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And we can kind of piece it through just real quickly here down and uh, get past I-65, Western and West Kentucky. These used to be heavy Democrat counties. Yep. It used to be the, the rock of Gibraltar for the Democratic yep. Party. Not anymore. They're flipping almost every month. And we're going to do very well down in Western and West Kentucky, because this is the first time uh, that these Western Kentucky counties are going to be engaged in a statewide gubernatorial primary. Mm -hmm. I'm from Georgetown, which is in central Kentucky. Of course, we farm there. Family's been there for 200 years. And we're like Lieutenant Dan of farming. We've been uh, farming uh, the same areas. uh, uh, so I'm a little bit better known there in the Andy Barr Congressional District. No Florida. shrimp boats, though, just for the record. No shrimp boats. In <laughs> That's South. right. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, I think I'm going to do very well in Central Kentucky. That's that's my backyard. Uh, I always perform well. My name ID is a little higher there. Then down in Eastern Kentucky, we've been very visible flood relief as we were with tornado relief. And we have a lot of endorsements. I think one thing that sets us apart and proves that we're the grassroots candidates that as of today, we have over 235 endorsements of elected Republicans, including over one-fourth of all our judge executives. And as you know, in rural counties, the judge executives are pretty influential folks. We're really uh, proud of that. Yeah, for those of you not from Kentucky, the, the judge executives is like, they're like mayors of a county. And you got to go, if you're going to do something in the county, you got to go through that. You got to go through them. Yeah, and you better stop at the courthouse, too. Yes. Uh, <laughs> otherwise... Uh, <laughs> They let you know. They and, do. You know, big footprint with the Kentucky General Assembly. And then we even got really a, a granular with our magistrates, that we have over 100 magistrates. And, and these folks know where the votes are at. So let's kind of wrap it up here. I think that with only a, about a week and a half left, our media plan is up. We're matching the other campaigns in terms of points uh, in the media markets. I think people are, are eager to see a positive race, a positive candidate. Uh, that's focused on the issues. And that's the route that we've taken during the debates as well. But at the end of the day, uh, rural Kentucky, I think, is going to go going to turn very well in our favor. And it's been over 20 years since we've had a governor from rural Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people feel that I am the candidate who has the best chance of beating Andy Beshear in the fall. That's one thing that surprisingly has not been talked about a lot is that is that, yes, we have to get to the primary, but that's just the start of the fall yeah. election. And this is going to be a tough race. It, it will be the most high-profile race in America this year. I'm sorry, Georgia, you had four chances to fill <laughs> the spotlight with, with U.S. Senate races, but it's Kentucky's turn. It is Kentucky's turn, no question about it. And as we've said often, these off-year elections, 
have huge consequence and huge significance on what is likely to happen in in either midterms or in this case the presidential. Right. And so, you know, Democrats are looking at that with a guy like Andy Bashir, who's sort of been beloved by the Democratic establishment nationally as a guy who managed to represent a red state and have you know, up to this point, really good approval numbers. But I, I'm guessing based upon your travels in rural Kentucky that there's not a lot of people who have paid close attention to some of the things that this guy's been talking about. I think you're right. And whoever the nominee is, we have to remind folks about the damage that was done during the COVID lockdowns. Yeah. And I'll just give you one example. Uh, the last states in America to have mandatory mask mandates were New York, Massachusetts, California, and Kentucky. That's uh, wild. One of them is not like the other. And, <laughs> and so when I talk to people that live through this or, or guests that travel through Kentucky during the COVID lockdowns, they were just appalled. And yeah. we need more freedom in Kentucky, less government. And so for me, we just got to remind folks about shutting down the economy, keeping our kids out of schools. And now our test scores have gone down. And then obviously violation of constitutional rights when he ordered troopers to go to churches on Easter Sunday. But I took the governor to court. And I'm the first person out of the field of 12 Republicans, who are all my friends, uh, to take the governor to court and win to keep the economy open. And we got to remind people about that as well. And so in rural Kentucky in particular, they're looking for somebody who had the grit to stand up to the governor. They're looking for someone that has dirt on their boots like me, a farm kid from central Kentucky. And so I think that we've got a great race ahead of us. And let's not put the cart before the horse, but after the primary, this isn't necessarily going to be a Republican versus Democrat race. This is going to be rural versus urban uh, America. And that's what we saw. Yep. In Georgia. Uh, we It's a, you know, the sea of red with a dot of blue around Atlanta. We see it in uh, Illinois where Chicago runs the rest of the state. There are enough aggregate votes in rural Kentucky uh, to beat Andy Bashir. And, and let's Lord not knows, don't I know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And let's, let me throw out another amazing statistic. If you add up uh, all the votes that Andy Bashir net gained or won by in his two statewide elections as attorney general in 19, excuse me, in 15, and then a governor in 19, he only won statewide office by a combined 8,000 votes. Mm -hmm. That's it. Two races, two razor thin margins. A lot of people referred to him as the accidental governor mm -hmm. from 2019. So he can be beaten. It's going to be tough. And I feel like I have the best shot of beating him. Yeah. Well, it's a good case that you're making. And in the, in the, I see what you're doing with the mud on the boots deal. That's a pretty good pitch, especially coming from an ag commissioner and a guy who grew up farming. Tell me a little bit about your background. I know, I know quite a bit, but I think the <laughs> audience would be interested in knowing how it is that you got into politics in the first place and ultimately how you ended up choosing now to be the time you want to run for the state's top job? Well, I don't come from a political family. My, my dad was not a sitting governor of Kentucky. <laughs> uh, I, my dad uh, worked, my brother and I, uh, just like the nine other generations of Kentuckians before me of Quarles is that we grew up working hard. I started working full time at age six for a dollar an hour. My, my dad I feel like, I feel like there's some child labor uh, issues. Well, that, Ryan. <laughs> I was going to say, my dad didn't believe in child labor laws until after I turned 18. And now he has, he's had a sudden change of heart. Uh, he's like the Grinch on, on Christmas morning, you know, his heart grew three sizes, but, uh, <laughs> but I have a work ethic, a work ethic. And my mom told me, my mom's a public school teacher. She spent 30 years teaching people how to become nurses. And, and so I, 
I think I got civically engaged and aware through Kentucky 4-H and FFA. Mm-hmm. Then watching my dad uh, advocate for farmers uh, with farm bills in Washington, D.C., et cetera. And so I think that's where the political bug really started for me. I went on to University of Kentucky and I was motivated. I took 27 credit hours a semester, uh, knocked out five degrees there, picked up a, a full ride at Harvard University. You know, your academic career is a lot different than mine. i like the motivation at a young age i guess that's why it is that you're running for governor right i guess it's like that scene from tommy boy you know a lot of people go to college for eight years that's That's exactly right you ended up at harvard and by the way i love nothing more than ivy leaguers having to hear somebody who talks like you every day oh yeah are you saying i have an accent (laughs) You know, I, I was wearing boots to Harvard Law School, and, uh, and and people were like, where did this guy come from? They're like treating you like a zoo animal. <laughs> say this, say that. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, the year I was there was the fall of 2008 and spring of 2009. So I was there during yeah. the Obama-McCain election. And you want to talk about uh, being a, a a lonely Republican oh, yeah. on campus. Holy smokes. It, <laughs> It, I was carrying the water for the party up there, and I you know I, I enjoyed it, but I was so glad to get back home and finish up my law degree from UK. And, and I actually ran for the legislature while I was a student at UK Law School, and I had a primary eight days after I graduated, got to the bar exam, and then um, I beat a 14-year sitting incumbent member of leadership in the state house. I remember that in the vote, and became the first Republican since the Civil War to hold that seat. So I was really proud of myself. Yeah, well, you know, and that's the thing about about your career in this is that people look at your last couple of elections and you've blown the doors off people and they forget you've been in some squeakers before, too. Yes, and I know how to beat incumbent Democrats because I've done it before. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's all about it's a numbers game. We know this is going to be a low turnout primary. We thought it's going to be somewhere between 20 and 22 percent. Now it's been revised down less than that. So we're thinking maybe 300,000 people total on mm-hmm. the Republican side voting and participating on the May 16th primary. So you start splitting that up three or four or five ways. You can win this with 125, maybe even 100,000 votes, perhaps even less. And so for me, our grassroots are locked in. The farm community of Kentucky is getting behind us. And I've gone to uh, more Lincoln Day dinners than I can count. And we're putting miles on my big red truck. Yeah. And so we're having fun. I'm actually, I'm very confident. I'm not nervous at all. And I think that we have a really great strategy. And we were talking about it earlier. There's three really distinct strategies here. And Daniel's my friend, Kelly's my friend. And and I think that we're the grassroots candidate in this race. So we're going to see what what sort of appeal that has in modern modern Kentucky political strategy? I think yeah, it's well, and and it's and I can see why you have confidence in it because as you said, the turnout in these off year primaries is not what it usually is, and a gr- good ground game that makes a big difference. We've seen it yeah. in primaries in the past, and we're going to see it again. I do think this one's a little higher profile, and it seems to me like you've got. An awful lot of people who recognize post-COVID and, and post-Andy mm-hmm. Bashir uh way he's run the state, that the governor is it, it makes all kinds of decisions that either amplify 
what a president of the United States and a Congress are doing or go in the other direction. And in the case of the Biden administration, the guys basically followed everything that they want him to do and more. Right. Uh, right. And and so the importance of it, you would think, would would rise would raise the the turnout a bit. I think so. And then there are a handful of local elections across the state that might yeah. have, might see some, you know, micro uh, upticks in some counties. But but I think a winning strategy that for 2023 is unifying the party, unifying Kentucky and also electability. That's one thing that you usually don't see on the campaign trail that a lot of Republicans, if they're not already forming, they're organically kind of coming towards me as a home. Mm -hmm. uh, because they want to see who has the best chance of winning. And 2019, I won 117 of 120 counties. And so for me, I think that this race is going to be one that will set the stage for the 2024 presidential race. Because Kentucky is a litmus test, right? That we have, we're one of only three states of these off-year elections, uh, Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, and Kentucky. So what happens here? Uh, could very well be a, a litmus test, you know, thumb in the wind about what's going to happen next year on the national level. Yeah, and I think you're right in that, you know, win, lose, or draw, you have been in the way you've conducted this campaign, a central force in trying to bring factions of the party together. And and these primaries, I mean, look, they get ugly. Everybody says it's forever broken and they, you know, we kind of come piecing them back together, but it takes people like you who have friends in all camps in order to do that. I know we've had some tough ones in the past, but this one yeah. is, uh, I got to imagine from your your seat watching all the air wars go on everywhere else, it's got to be an interesting vantage point. It It is. And, and the way I look at it is that we got to make sure we come together after May 16th. And yeah. I think mud, as you mentioned earlier, mud belongs on our boots, not in our politics. Because look, we know the fall race is going to be rough. We know that, especially with outside groups coming in. Um, so for me, my whole strategy has been follow Reagan's 11th commandment. And mm. uh, let's have a governor's race that's based off who has the best ideas and not insults. Yeah. Well, look, I think there's a lot of people listening to this program that appreciate that. And I'm sure there are a lot of people in Kentucky that appreciate that. But, but they, there's a high tolerance in Kentucky for negative advertising, as we've seen over the last yeah. few, few years. You know, politics is the damnedest in Kentucky, right? So <laughs> just the name an author, they probably said that at some point. But, <laughs> but you know, for me, I I think that for someone that grew up on a tobacco farm, not from a political family, this really is an, an honor of a lifetime. And it also is it's proof that America uh, still works, that, that if you work hard enough, if you apply yourself, if you study, I think that that for me – the America that I know, the Kentucky I know, is that you can do just about anything you want in life as long as you apply yourself. Yeah. Really that. Yeah. No, it's a good message. So I imagine uh, the only time you're going to be wearing a suit is on Saturday at the Derby, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, boots and suits now. <laughs> we never abandon the boots. And Saturday's going to be a lot of fun. Look, yeah. Kentucky gets two minutes of the world's attention every single year. And so we make the most of it. We're promoting Kentucky bourbon. We're promoting Kentucky foods. And of course, our racehorses, uh, you know, when talk, people talk about athletes. Uh, these are the real athletes. Uh, there's two horses that live about 15 minutes from our farm, each of them valued at around $90 million each. Holy cats. Are you so serious? I, 
I think they live a better lifestyle than you or me. Okay. Oh, no, no question. Throw that out there. <laughs> and and look, I've got the opportunity to travel internationally, sell our state. Uh, I went to Dubai last year, uh, selling Kentucky horses. I was in the United Kingdom last year, getting a bourbon um, excise tax lowered to zero. Yeah, so, you did a good job on that. Well, I appreciate that. And and when you say you're from Kentucky, they ask about three things. Kentucky bourbon, Kentucky horses, and Colonel Sanders. There All of those are agricultural products that I love. And so, look, I think that's going to be a big part that when I win this governor's race, we want to push Kentucky internationally. It's been a long time since we've had a governor that looks beyond the borders of the Commonwealth, looks beyond the borders of the United States. And so I think that we have a really good strategy for economic development outside of our state. Ride fast horses and drink good bourbon. It's not a bad message. Yeah, don't get those two confused. Right. <laughs> no, no, you don't want to get that backwards. So, do you have? I know you. I know you think that the uh, the underdog is going to win the Kentucky Derby. Do you actually have a, a horse that you you like? I mean, if we could use all the tips you can give us. You know, I usually wait till Derby Day. This oh, you do the? You, do you do the like the full? You you watch them run around and you kind of measure them up and handicap them. I usually call one of my good friends that yeah. does that for me. You know, you know leadership. Uh, Mr. Holmes is about uh, delegation. You know, you got to find people that are a lot smarter than you. And uh, that's a fancy way of saying I'll let someone else do that for me. <laughs> experts in their field. Why not trust the the experts? <laughs> that's right. So, you know, I, I have a good time with it. Um, I, I'm there shaking hands. We're hosting dignitaries from around the world. Uh, but I also bring some friends with me as well. So, look, the Kentucky Derby is something that's iconic. And I can't wait to pass out the uh, the trophy next year at the 150th Kentucky Derby. I love it. I love it. Well, I'll be there this year. I'll see you. Uh, and it's going to be the first time I've been back since American Pharaoh uh, won the Triple Crown. So yeah. I'm, I got high expectations. Yeah. Track conditions should be good. Weather should be all right. And, you know, as Commissioner of Agriculture, a lot of my colleagues across the country, they they especially my oh, yeah. friends, those flatlanders from those states that start with I out in the Midwest, you know, it's corn and soybeans and, and, and maybe pigs and dairy. But for me, it's about Kentucky bourbon, Kentucky horses, um, tobacco and hemp. So we, you know, we've got some really unique things compared to the others. Yeah. And they all call you for Kentucky Derby tickets every year. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. They think I'm ticket master. <laughs> I love it. Well, Ryan, listen, I got three big questions that we ask everybody the first time they come on the program. And uh, the first one is, uh, I think, probably pretty simple for you. I think I know where you're going, but uh, last meal on earth, if you can plan it, what would it be? Oh, this would be a brisket that's been smoked at least 18 hours, you go. Uh, low and slow, uh, accompanied with a, with some pairing bourbons. Put oh, maybe Try. even like a bourbon sauce of some kind. Like That's fantastic. I love it. Okay. Love to cook. Love to cook. All right. So if you never got into public service at all, and you've got this just sort of blue sky moment in your life that you can replace it with the benefit of retrospect with absolutely anything in the world, what would it be? Oh, if it wasn't elected politics, I'd love to be the United States Secretary of Agriculture. Mm. I think that that would be great. But if you if you if you force me to not choose a political route. I think that the uh, University of Kentucky president. Uh, oh, wow. 
That's a real Homer answer right there. I love that. That you know, yeah. people don't appreciate in Kentucky, UK is just revered. I mean, you can't go to a single corner of the entire Commonwealth without people wearing their blue. And uh, you know, it's not like that in every state. That's it, right. It's it's pretty unique. And I also think that running UK in many ways, you can be more impactful to people because the land grant status, the extension offices, the healthcare branch, it's just so impactful to so many Kentuckians. It's not just about good sports, uh, knock on wood. And yeah. I think you can you can change a lot of people's lives in that position. Yeah, I think you're right. I've, I've uh, I managed to, uh, as chief of staff, learn in about ten seconds that I had to put them at sort of a unique situation in terms of being responsiveness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure people will still treat me as Ticketmaster if that was the. Oh, you'd be way, way worse. Destiny, that's right. Yeah, you'd be. That'd be way worse. All right. So the last question, and this is a little esoteric. I'll explain it because the audience hasn't heard it in a while, but. We think that almost every successful person is motivated by one of two things or some uh, version within, and it's either the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. And it's not that anyone likes to lose or is uh, enamored uh, with other than anything other than winning. It's what motivates you and whether losses uh, anger you. And like the perfect example is Michael Jordan, uh, where every victory he ever had, he enjoyed for two minutes. And every loss, it was like what he used to try to try to get to the next step. The other side is the sunny optimist and sort of self-motivated trying to get up the hill. Um, where do you think you find yourself on that, Ryan? Well, not to quote Michael Scott that you uh, – when he tried to quote Michael Jordan that you miss a 1,000% of the shots that you don't take, but I think he was missing it up with Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. Um, I think that I, I'm more so motivated with the thrill of victory uh, because I don't spend my time, if things don't go my way, if I fall short at a personal goal, I don't spend my time beating myself up. I, I, I'm really good at an at a autopsy and saying, hey, what can we do better? But I don't spend my time in grief or dwell in the past. And so for me, as uh, like I said earlier, the farm kid from Kentucky that, that grew up with not many means and don't come from a political family, I'm going for the win. That's mm -hmm. what motivates me. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. And the way you've run your campaign, it very much corresponds with that point of view in life. Ryan Quarles, if if people listen to this and they want to help you out, where do they go? RyanQuarles.com. There you can check out our Bold Issues uh, campaign. We're actually putting out ideas uh, that I think will fix Kentucky. And there's also a donation link there. And, and I, I'm sorry to break this to you, Mr. Holmes, but the most that you personally can donate is only $2,100. And I know you've been saving up for this, like it's your child's wedding day, but that's, I got to cut you off. I don't want you to break, break the law, but, uh, but yeah. Check you don't out want my money after. until after the primary, pal. Trust me. <laughs> you don't want it. It'll be a story you don't want. I keep, I keep hearing that around Kentucky from a lot of people for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Well, you get through this and we'll talk. All right. All right. Sounds All right. good. I'll see you Saturday. Big on Derby. That way, uh, that way you can max out. That's right. I got to hit a trifecta, and then I'll then I'll come see you. Uh, listen, Ryan Quarles, thanks for coming on the program, and we'll see you Saturday down at the Derby. See you there, Ryan Quarles. He's a really good guy. As you could tell from that interview, knows his stuff. Salt of the earth. Decided to run a very grassroots campaign that's not engaging the other top two in this air war that they've got going back and forth. I've seen that work before. Mm -hmm. You know, you've seen where you've had two top candidates 
they're polling well ahead of the rest blow each other up and on election day based on turnout and grassroots and everything else weird things can happen Mm -hmm. i don't know if that's the case i mean it looks like from polls that you've got daniel cameron with a pretty big lead and 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 then you've got you know kelly Kraft who's running second um and then you've got ryan a considerable third but i don't know and anytime you have this many talented candidates in one race like i've said before I'd take any of them in a Senate race last cycle. And I, and I love being the platform where we have conservatives come give their view in a primary. Exactly. Everybody is here. We'll give them platform because all that the, 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 the mainstream media is going to do is how do we destroy this guy if, if he shows up on our, on our uh, uh, platform? How do we do that? Yeah. Yeah. That's not what we do here. We try to give you. As you speak to the people. Make your case. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Smug, despite the fact that we've been abandoned by our colleagues, I think we've done it. And You know, if I may say so myself, absolute extra banger of an episode. Thank you, Josh, for showing up to work. Oh, no I appreciate thanks to that, Duncan. Smug. No thanks to Ashbrook, but thank you to our listeners. Hopefully, Duncan will feel better. We'll have King of the Hill next week. So, until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless.